Serial killers were having a bit of a moment in the early 90s. That moment is perhaps most clearly highlighted by Silence of the Lambs growing from an unexpected blockbuster to an awards season juggernaut, nabbing Oscars for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay. And less than six months after all those awards had been handed out, a horror movie was playing out in real life in Greensboro when a fifth body had been discovered and police finally began considering the murdered women as victims of a serial killer. I'm Chris Lay. And I'm Nat Cardona. This is the second episode in our series looking at Robert Sylvester Alston. He's a bit of an anomaly, given that while he was convicted or admitted to the gruesome murders of multiple women, his crimes have warranted next to zero national coverage, neither at the time he was active nor in the years since. It feels like every serial murder case has been adapted for TV shows or retold on podcasts, but not this case. News and record journalists followed the murders closely and reported on the story at the time. Follow-up articles came in the years that followed, but that's about it for coverage. It seems that the lack of national interest in this is because Alston's victims were black prostitutes. For this set of episodes on the program, we're sharing articles selected from the archives of the Greensboro News and Record, along with excerpts of interviews that were conducted with the journalists who were close to the case at the time of Alston's crimes. Last week, you heard the first bit from my conversation with Lorena Hearn, so if this is your first time here, stop and go back to that episode and listen to it first. After this short break, we're going to be starting with Lorraine's article from the very end of summer of 1992, which announced the discovery of a fifth body. September 22nd, 1992. Fifth slaying victim found. With another black woman found dead in Greensboro, fears of a pattern of killings grow. A young black woman was found slain Tuesday evening in the same area of southeast Greensboro where four similar killings remain unsolved. Police did not identify the latest victim, found before dusk in a McCullough Street field near Martin Luther King Jr. Drive. No details, including the cause of death, were released Tuesday night about the killing, which came less than a month after police formed a task force to investigate a potential serial killer. There are no direct relationships to the other killings, but there are some similarities, said Greensboro Police Captain Drew Kennedy. Police arrived around 5 p.m. Tuesday after a group of men found the body and one of them flagged down a police cruiser. Joe Warren said he had been drinking in the field when he found the body, which he said did not appear decomposed. I just saw the whole body, just like that, he said. It didn't look like it was missing any arms or nothing. The body was found in the woods behind a house on 420 East McCullough Street, just west of Martin Luther King Jr. Drive, 50 feet into the woods, police said. Kennedy said the woman appeared to have been killed Tuesday and appeared to have been in her early to mid-20s. Kennedy said police do not know whether the woman had been sexually assaulted. He would not comment on the condition of the body, but Warren said the body was clothed. Late Tuesday night, Greensboro detectives were still at the scene and had not moved the body or allowed anyone else near it. To neighbors in the area, the yellow police lines and swarm of police and onlookers at the crime scene are becoming a dreadful ritual. Less than two blocks away, the discovery of a body in the spring of 1991 began what police now suspect is a pattern of killings of young black women involved in drugs and prostitution. 
Joanne Robinson, the first victim, was found strangled near McCullough Street Park. She was 23. Cheryl Lynn Mason, 35, was next, found dead behind a truck stop. Sharon Martin, 26, disappeared along Martin Luther King Drive last fall. Her head and severed arm were found later. In July, a naked, decapitated body was found. There have been no positive identification, but the police believe it may be the remains of Shamika Warren, 19, who was last seen at Martin Luther King Jr. Drive and Julian Street, two blocks from where the latest body was discovered Tuesday. In a twist that demonstrates, again, the tight radius of the deaths, the man who identified the body Tuesday identified himself as the uncle of the missing Shamika Warren. Though his niece officially is listed as missing, Warren said the family is convinced she is dead. If Tuesday's killing fits the profile of the other deaths, that could rule out the possible link Greensboro police were considering with the case of a Pennsylvania man who was charged in the mutilation killings of two young black prostitutes in Harrisburg, PA. That man is in jail in Pennsylvania. But whether the deaths are the work of a serial killer or are random, unconnected killings, Residents in the area around Martin Luther King Jr. Drive have become fearful and bewildered about the increasing drug and prostitution traffic invading their neighborhood. Some complain that the police and courts are failing them. Dorothy Brown, who lives on Julian Street, about a block from last night's crime scene, says changes in her neighborhood make her mad as hell. It's something that's not being done that could be done, said Brown who is also a District 1 advisor for the police department. I'm sick and tired of it. Something has to be done. Brown argues that prostitutes, many of them crack addicts, should be arrested and jailed, but also should get drug rehabilitation so they no longer have to depend on the street to support their habits. Brown, whose son was slain two years ago, believes it would be a small price to pay compared with the toll that crime is taking on the community. It costs a lot when you see people die, she said, and you have to bring out all these officers and the SBI. Frank Miller, operator of the nearby Urban Ministry Shelter, said the problem appeared to have moved from the Julian and Best Streets area known as the Hill. Boy, is that frightening, he said of the increasing encroachment of drugs and prostitution on the streets around the shelter. We need to disallow that before it gets too far. Once they get a good toehold on a corner, it's hard to get rid of them. Something just popped in my mind here. Going back to the whole, let's not call it a serial killer thing. Nowadays, you know, even with this podcast, right? There's a a whole genre of true crime and people are obsessed with it and people will read about it and will follow, you know, just lay people in the community. We'll, We'll track it on their own, these armchair detectives. Do you remember any semblance of that back in the early 90s when you were reporting this? I mean, or was it just such not a thing to to, to have this be such a sensational topic? I mean, you put serial killer on anything nowadays and it's going to get a lot of retweets, right? Back then, obviously, it's a pre-internet era of what it is today. But do you remember any, like, really... fandom is a terrible word, but any just traction that you were getting with this whole thing going on and reporting on it? No, I don't think so. I think it was just fear because it's it's a mid-sized city. It's maybe quarter of a million people. Southeast Greensboro is a very tight-knit community. And I think there was a feeling that 
anyone could be next, that no one was safe. I don't know why there was this hesitation to call it a serial killer. Maybe the police were just being careful or they didn't want it sensationalized because, sure, that, that would have been a sensational thing um, to admit that there was a serial killer mutilating prostitutes you know jack the ripper style that's what you know most famous serial killer of all uh, preyed on prostitutes and got away with it so i don't think people had a prurient interest in it i think they just were afraid especially in the black community when uh robert alston came on the radar and was caught were you in the newsroom at that time or were you out I was in the newsroom, but I had become, um, at some point, a columnist. I was working on a lot of other things, and I wasn't involved with the case anymore. September 23rd, 1992. Man charged with woman slasher killing. Awful early to link to previous slayings. Police charge a Greensboro man with murder by Lorraine Ahern and Tatiana M. With, staff writers. Police have charged a 38-year-old Greensboro man with Tuesday's slasher killing of a young woman, but they refuse to say whether they believe the case belongs to a pattern of recent prostitute slayings. Hours after Bernice Denise Robinson, age 22, was found in the woods with her throat slit near Martin Luther King Jr. Drive, police charged Larry Darby Jr., with first-degree murder. Darby, arrested after midnight Wednesday near his home, had been placed at the scene of the crime early on by witnesses. But police wouldn't say whether they suspect Darby and four previous unsolved killings in the same neighborhood during the past year. It's awful early to make that determination, Captain Drew Kennedy said Wednesday. He is clearly the suspect in yesterday's investigation. The first details made public by the medical examiner did not identify a weapon, but revealed that Robinson died from a six-inch long gash in the left side of her neck that went as deep as her spine. Unlike two decapitation killings in the past year, Robinson had not been mutilated, according to State Associate Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Robert Thompson. Cuts on her hands suggested that Robinson fought with her attacker, but Thompson said there was no initial sign of a sexual assault. Police said Wednesday they know little so far about Darby, who has a record of mostly property crimes and minor drug offenses, several assaults and two escapes from a state prison, once in 1978 and once in 1981. He was being held without bond Wednesday at the Guilford County Jail. All the young black women who were killed frequented the area near Martin Luther King and were known to be involved in drugs or prostitution. In the previous cases, however, it was at least a month before each body was discovered. Robinson's was found within hours of her death. The victim's father, Morgan Robinson Sr., said he last saw his daughter about 12.45 p.m. Tuesday. He waved from his car when he spotted her at the Conoco station on Martin Luther King. Her body would be found about four hours later, no more than a block away. Her father and other family members said they did not know Darby, and Bernice Robinson had never mentioned him. Wednesday, some people reacted cautiously to the arrest. Somebody's out there hurting people, said Brenda Dumas, Robinson's lifelong friend. 
I'm hoping that it's over, but I just don't know. Anything else that you remember from that time that I haven't asked you yet that you're just dying to tell me? Well, what stuck out for me was what we call now the missing white woman syndrome, like the the Gabby Petito kind of tragedy that gets all over the news. I was feeling that at the time that that was playing out in our community as early as the early 90s. And um, for example, with the the child's rape and murder um, that just never got enough attention. And what it was telling me that was that this was a, a missing black woman syndrome and really the whole side of town was missing from the emphasis and the representation. And this is what I work on now as an academic. Um, I do research on representation of marginalized communities and no community could possibly be as marginalized as black women addicts who were doing sex work in order to feed their habit. I mean, has journalism done better to serve these communities nowadays and in, in these similar situations and reporting, or are we still kind of doing the same thing as 30 years ago? Well, I don't know. I think journalists, serious journalists do a lot better. And I think they're, they're intentional and deliberate and conscientious about this. But I think our culture, like the culture around serial killers, like Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy. Okay. So there's this, there are all these shows about serial killers, all these dramas about serial killers, and there's almost a glorification and romanticization of them, which is very strange. I don't think that has to do with journalism. Um, there, There is a sense that journalism, for example, in the Petito case, that got so big on social media for good reason, because she was a YouTube influencer or would-be influencer. So there was a good reason that that blew up on social media, but then it actually impacted journalism. And the contrast between that case, which was a horrible tragedy, but the many, many tragedies, for example, in the Native American world, in indig missing and murdered indigenous women, you know, we could have lots of serial killers out there and nobody would ever connect the dots because they just don't get attention. And it's it's a cultural thing. That's exactly right. It sucks, doesn't it? Well, it it does, but it's not without hope because we can educate both consumers and students, um, consumers of the news, but students who will be producers of the news like yourself um, and make them aware that journalism needs to truly reflect the community and not play into um, sensationalism and this kind of fandom, as you put it, that this is, these are people's children. These, these are lives that were destroyed, many lives, um, not just the, the victims, but the families and the neighbors and whoever found these remains. I mean, think of that experience. Yeah, it is that pause. I mean, 
I'm a mother. So that's, uh, mm-hmm. I think any parent or even just like a friend or a sibling, you just, just take that pause and put yourself in their shoes and think about if it was somebody that you knew. And it's not that hard to think, oh, damn, this is, this is something that matters and that people need to pay attention to. Yeah. Cause your life would never be the same. No, but also the, the lives of your neighbors, you know, I'll, neighborhoods were affected by these stories in a terrible way you know you cannot walk past that field every day and not think of what happened and what you saw you can't unsee it mm-hmm. hey there this is chris just jumping in for a second to say that nat is about to ask lorraine if the 1990 child murder that was mentioned in passing earlier in the conversation was ever solved Lorraine says that it was not, but in 2014, which was four years after Lorraine left the paper, a man was convicted and is serving two life terms for the crime. Myself, Nat, and Lorraine regret the error, and we will have a link to the article in the show notes. Now, back to the interview. Just uh, on a side here, did uh, the murderer ever get caught for the, the little girl that was found? No. No. That's terrible. Jeez. Does that, does that like stick with you? Do you think about that? Often, oh, very or? much so. And I, it, what sticks with me too is um, her twin sister. Of course. Who um, did not have a good life. Oh, no. Um, so, yeah, the idea that, that that person could still be walking around, it's possible. Um, it's been 30 or more years now. But it was it was a horrible crime. And then and then the injustice on top of that just compounded it. Right. And now this is just out of my curiosity is do you mm-hmm. how do you know about her sister? Did did you personally just follow? Well, I, I had um, I had children in school, too. And I got to know teachers and a, a very good friend of mine who was my child's teacher knew all about this girl and um she resurfaced sometimes and it was just a very very sad story it was a terrible story but it was you know the 90s were a terrible time for greensboro for greensboro's black community because there were so many people dying both from crack addiction but from violence fueled by the drug trade it was unbelievable there was a funeral every week. And in one case, I knew a mom who her son was accused, well, convicted of killing someone. And then that victim's brother wound up the same way, killing someone else. You know, just awful stories. There was a, a case I wrote about of a a man who was killed in a drive-by shooting um, just a couple of weeks before his son was born. Well, recently I contacted Nancy McLaughlin because that child had grown up and been killed in the same way. And he was, he was named after his father. He was, and that's how I recognized the name. And it was like this horrible deja vu that he's probably going to be buried right next to his father same age like 21 22 how eerie is that it is and um you know i'm i'm just glad there's somebody like nancy mclaughlin that you can still call in greensboro when you know a story 
I think the newspaper had a very good impact on the community for a lot of years. Um, I think we brought out a lot of stories that wouldn't have been told otherwise. Um, it's just, it's not really a TV kind of story when you can get into these generational patterns and tragedies. Um, you can't do that in, you know, 30 seconds. No way. And I, yeah, that's the background that I come from originally is TV news. And mm -hmm. that is exactly right. There's a lot of respect for traditional print news because of that. It's way too, it's way too convoluted. You have to see it on paper and right. read it. Right. Well, thank you so much for your sure, time. Sure, this was good. Well, that's it for this episode. You can find links to all the articles that we're referencing in our show notes. Please make sure that you're subscribed to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles wherever it is that you get your podcasts because we're going to be back next week with more from this story along with part one of our conversation with Greensboro news and record reporter, Nancy McLaughlin. Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles is a product of Lee Enterprises, and the show is produced, recorded, and edited by myself, Chris Lay, and Nat Cardona. Thank you all so much. We'll see you back here next week.